Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi guys, this is Nina Clark. I'm one of the Behind the Knife Education Fellows. This week, we're proud to be partnering with the Association for Academic Surgery and Dr. Carrie Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham is an Associate Professor of Surgery, an NIH-funded researcher, and a practicing endocrine surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital. And she is the current president of AAS. This year, she gave a presidential address at their annual meeting that stuck with several of us at BTK. It's a raw, emotional, and incredibly brave speech that touches on topics that are really hard to talk about in our line of work, including depression, substance abuse, and suicide. We are so grateful to Dr. Cunningham for her leadership in sharing her story, and we hope hearing her speech will be as impactful for you all as it has been for us. Without further ado, here's Dr. Cunningham at the Academic Surgical Congress. Good morning. Just got to get the first word out. Yes. I was the top junior tennis player in the United States, won the Junior US Open, and was ranked top 50 in the world professionally at the age of 16. I've competed at Wimbledon five times. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Harvard. I am an R01. I'm the proud president of the AAS. I'm also human. I'm a person with lifelong depression, anxiety, and now with substance use disorder. None of my professional successes have protected me against this. I'm not special. Dr. Christina Barkley, Christina Ray Barkley, died by suicide on April 12, 2012. She was bright talented, deeply compassionate, and funny. She was my friend. As her sister Jill, who's here with us today, said, we imagined a lifetime of incredible things she'd continue to do not not only as a surgeon, but a wife, an aunt, a daughter, a sister, and a friend. I'm dedicating this to, to Tina. Jill, thank you so much for being here. Oh, boy. Anyone who knows me knows this is not surprising that I'm having trouble here. Vulnerability is the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. I know that giving this address today will change my career path. There will be jobs that I am not offered. There will be doubts as to my abilities. There will be people who see me as weak 
emotional, and damaged. Although I am not going to, sh- I am going to share deeply personal things about myself. This is not about me. I've made the decision to share my story in the hopes of using this opportunity for good. If I can prevent one of you or one of our colleagues from dying by suicide or suffering alone, it will be worth it. That is why I'm doing this. Tina is why I'm doing this. This is going to be a difficult 40 minutes, so bear with me. This is terrifying, and I'm vulnerable. Let me just take care of this. I'm not an expert on mental health beyond what I have read and learned through my own experiences. These are strictly my own opinions peppered with a lot of literature and conversations with people who know more than me. My ideas are not original, but I believe are worth repeating. I have only good intentions. I apologize in advance if I ostracize, omit, or offend anyone by my words. The content throughout today may be uncomfortable and potentially upsetting to some of you. Take care of yourselves. And if you need to take a break, please do. Check in with each other. I believe that it is in this uncomfortable space that change and progress is made. This belief is one thing, one of the things that kept me going this past year. I know I am privileged to have this platform. I'm capable, free, white. I have never experienced a war, poverty, or the death of a child. I have two healthy children. I was able to have children. I have the ability and resources to do nearly anything I want. I have the resources to get help. I have many people who care about me who are here today. I have an incredibly supportive work environment. Imagine as you hear my story, how much harder it must be for those struggling without these privileges, including our medical students and residents. I'm lucky. We often cloak uncomfortable topics in more palatable terms. I am not going to sugarcoat anything today. This is not a talk about burnout or wellness. While those topics are very important, many of you have heard my mantra, self-care is a professional responsibility. But while burnout may exacerbate mental health disease, it is not the sole cause. All the Peloton rides in the world are not going to make my depression go away. At this precise moment last year, I was in crisis. I was in the midst of separating from my partner of 25 years. I was alone, hopeless, self-isolating, and using alcohol as a coping mechanism. I was having frequent panic attacks, which I was so good at hiding that no one noticed. A number of friends and colleagues had reached out to me long before then, citing their concern for my mental health, but I just pacified them, lied, and withdrew more. Two days before arriving in Orlando last year, I attended a function, intoxicated, in a manner that made it quite evident to those present that I was not well, and dangerously so. 
my friends cared enough about me to do something about it. I am forever grateful that they didn't listen to me because I wasn't fine. I wasn't suicidal, but I was headed there. I've been there at other points in my life. I understand feeling badly enough to do anything to make the pain go away. It isn't just the acuity of the anguish, it's the relentlessness. The belief that it will never end. Some call these moments cries for help, but in my opinion, it is just the opposite. When you are willing, willing to risk everything, that is when you just don't care anymore. Don't see the point. Believe that you are beyond repair. Believe that your loved ones would be better off without you. More people than you can imagine have felt or are currently feeling this way. If any of you are feeling that way now, we are not better off without you. We want you here. I will never know what would have happened if those friends had not intervened, but I am sure I would have spiraled further with much worse consequences than what I'm about to share. It still scares me to think about it. Others I have befriended in recovery in the past year, physicians, surgeons, mothers, and fathers were not as fortunate. I had the opportunity to change and get better. Many others no longer had that opportunity. My story is not unique. Substance use disorders, those that are diagnosed, are significantly more common in physicians than in the general population. One in seven. Doctors and nurses have doubled the suicide rate of the general population. Along with anesthesiologists and emergency room doctors, surgeons have the highest suicide rate among physicians. In the largest study of surgeons from the American College of Surgeons in 2011, 15% of the respondents reported suicidal ideation within their entire career, 6% within the year of that survey. Yet only a quarter of those people sought help. This has only gotten worse. Of the 625 of you who have responded to the survey, and thank you for doing so and for, for being vulnerable, 13% report suicidal ideation within this past year. 10% of you within the past two weeks. One in 10. Women respondents, this was 17%. Residents, 14%. Associate professors, 20%. 60% of you know a colleague who has died by or attempted suicide. Doctors are writing their own prescriptions, paying cash for antidepressants, and going to other cities to seek care for fear of being found out. Trainees and students do not have these luxuries of time and resources, yet are most at risk. Training itself is a risk factor for depression. Of thousands of interns followed prospectively, one study found that a third developed clinical depression, new clinical depression, which persisted over the following years of their residency, and only a quarter of those sought treatment. Given what our trainees sustained during COVID, I fear the trends in the coming years.
A number of you have reached out to me privately about your own struggles. Thank you for being vulnerable and supportive. It has given me courage. I hope that I'm giving you a voice today. I'm going to share a few lessons that I have learned during this journey. Those of you who know me well know that I like data, but this is only a case report. My opinions are my own. I share these lessons in the context of my own lived experiences to illustrate themes that I believe are common to all of us in this room. Number one, put health first. If you sense that someone is struggling, take action. In whatever form that intervention takes, including confronting the person, sharing your concerns with those closest to them, a trusted colleague, or the appropriate leadership. You're being a better friend by doing so than not. We are all expert at putting on a game face and putting others first. They will likely not respond well. As I did, they will deny their struggles. They will get angry and defensive. They may even stop talking to you. It is uncomfortable. Do it anyway. If you sense that someone is struggling, you're probably right. In light of tragic events, in the OR, in their personal lives, or in the world, check in. Just show up and sit there. And the worst that can happen by asking is a feeling that someone cares enough to ask. Their health is more important than their professional success and their ability to practice surgery. While trauma and grief experience can be attributed to distinct events, a mental health crisis and suicide are not. They are insidious and progressive. And the sad irony is that the worse it gets, the less you want to be helped. For us as surgeons, this is coupled with a fear of losing your career. Likely the one thing that still gives you purpose and a sense of self-worth. We are conditioned to put our patient's health above all us else, but it is not caregivers and caretakers. There are not two teams. Suffering is universal. Suffering is not a competition. Immediately following the ASC last February, I was referred to the Massachusetts Physician Health Service. Before this year, I didn't know they existed, and I'm, as I'm sure many of you don't. You'll hear more from Chris Bundy, the immediate past president of the Federation of State Physician Health Programs later this afternoon. There's a PHP or PHS equivalent in every state who helps your institution navigate the process and provide oversight for physicians in crisis from mental illness, including substance use disorders and other health conditions. There is a misconception that this is a punitive body. Yes, they are there to protect patients, but they are also there to advocate for and protect you. They are there to prevent you from being reported to the licensure board. They take on the responsibility of reassuring your institution if and when you are healthy enough to practice medicine. They ensure your accountability with monitoring, and they are there to find you long-term health. And it works. In Washington State, upwards of 90% of participants are not known to the medical board, and 80% of those in the program remain abstinent for those with substance use disorders. Don't get me wrong, it felt punitive. 
It is an understatement that I did not respond well to being told that I needed to step back from work. And then I had to have a formal psychiatric evaluation. On paper, I was at the pinnacle of my academic career. I was angry and defensive. I was scared and ashamed. I wanted to quit. I wanted to run. I wasn't fun to deal with. Their job is not easy. After the ASC last year, I stopped drinking for six weeks while I awaited PHS recommendations. No problem. But sobriety alone, while necessary, is not enough. It's not about the fill in the blank addiction. It is about making your pain go away. The pain is still there. The disease is still there. I have learned this is what is called white knuckling. I needed to be stripped of all of my addictions. I had to sit still. Ultimately, I underwent a formal evaluation of my fitness. After five solid days of every psychological and neurocognitive test you can imagine, my official DSM diagnoses included PTSD, persistent depressive disorder with major depressive episodes, and moderate substance abuse disorder, among others. This was followed by one of the hardest sentences I've ever read. In sum, I spent nearly three months in intensive therapy. It had been over 20 years since I took more than a week off of work. It felt like being forced through a wall of fire, terrified of walking through it and having no idea what was on the other side. At the same moment your bottom has fallen out and you are stripped of whatever your survival mechanisms were, you're asked to change. At your most vulnerable, you are asked to be strong. You are asked to unlearn ingrained behaviors. You don't know if the pain that you're enduring will lead to anything worthwhile. You are asked to trust the system when you feel betrayed. You feel shame and humiliation. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I'm still doing. I do not want to give the impression that this process was tidy, or that the outcome was inevitable or even foreseeable. Being raw and exposed daily for over a year is utterly exhausting. There were plenty of two steps back moments. During treatment, I relapsed with a vengeance. Felt like failing at failure. I spent my 50th birthday in rehab. I missed my daughter's 11th birthday. <laughs> that one still hurts a lot. And it's hard to say out loud. Lesson number two, there are only seven. Don't worry, not ten. Uh. Don't assume anything. Everyone comes to the table with a different set of experiences, vulnerabilities, and values. In fact, in my experience, it is precisely those that have something to prove or something to escape from 
that are most willing to sustain grueling training, either in sport or in surgery. This room is filled with national champions, concert pianists, and valedictorians. 45% of the survey respondents reported a serious traumatic event prior to medical training. Sometimes the distance traveled we discuss is clear. Most times it is not. Anger may be self-preservation. Aloofness may be loneliness. People are not malevolent by nature, so just trust that people are doing the best they can. I don't like the word resilience. Inherent in that word is the idea that you have to sustain a lot of adversity. It feels like hunkering down and not evolving. A universal truth is that change is constant. This is a central tenet of Buddhism, impermanence. The impermanence of sadness gives me solace. If you are feeling hopeless, remember this. While change is constant, growth is a choice. Growth is slow and painful. It requires uncertainty, patience, and hard work. I have to accept that I will always have tough days. I can expect recurrent bouts of depression throughout my life. Depression is a real biologic entity. I can feel it physically when it is coming on, and I can feel it lift. It is a disease not a character flaw. It does not define me. I can't fix it, but I am in charge of it. I can own up to my own contributions to it, and I can work on soothing it. Depression does not equal weakness. People in recovery are the most authentic and strongest people that I know. Courage is facing fear in the midst of vulnerability. Lesson number three, mastery is the result of mistakes, not perfection. Mastery requires discipline, dedication, and focus. Perfectionism is driven by fear. It is unachievable. It doesn't allow for vulnerability or growth. It actually impairs achieving mastery by failing to embrace mistakes as areas for improvement. Without failure, without uncertainty, there is no innovation or progress. When we fear discussing our weaknesses and see our failures as personal defects, we avoid challenges and have a difficult time re recovering from our inevitable errors. You only make mistakes when you're trying. You only have complications when you're operating. As a tennis player and in life, I was driven by a fear of losing. Fear is a powerful motivator, but it is destructive. At a very young age, I would run so hard that I would hyperventilate. Even when I was up 6050, I hit myself with my racket so frequently that I always had bruises along the side of my leg. I was praised for being scrappy and mentally tough. I was praised for being a perfectionist. And over the course of 40 years, these behaviors have only been reinforced. My bruises internalized. I have no doubt this resonates with many of you.
I would have been a much better tennis player had I lost a few matches while I worked on to develop other parts of my game. We are all incredibly hard on ourselves. We take it personally. We compare our insides with other people's outsides, their narratives. We do not even come close to affording the same compassion we give to others to ourselves. If suck it up worked for people with depression, none of us in this room would be depressed. We spend five to 10 years of training doing just that. While being a perfectionist is undoubt undoubtedly leads to external successes, it is also the thing that prevents you from seeking help, from admitting to yourself or anyone else that you are human. It isolates you. If perfection is your goal, you will live your life in a constant state of failure. This has been my greatest addiction. I still consider my tennis career a failure. That I did not reach my potential. That like alcohol is a temporary fix for anxiety. Pride from external achievements is a fleeting sense of self-worth. External validation can never make you feel whole. It is no one else's job to make you feel whole. Only you can do that. And for some of us, that takes a lot of work. I was 17 when I had my first major depressive episode, following my loss at the French Open, of all places. So I was sitting in Paris, in my hotel room, shades drawn, alone, barely eating for a week. I didn't know what it was, and it never crossed my mind to ask for help. Elite athletes, especially in individual sports, feel invincible. The rules don't apply to you. You almost have to be, have that mindset to be successful, as the game at that level is very mental. I thought I should be able to fix it myself and felt like a failure for not being able to. I felt shame for having those feelings and thoughts, and I had that shame and those thoughts for the rest of my life. Given all of my privileges, I didn't think I deserved to have those feelings. It took me until Tina died, two decades later, to finally start taking an antidepressant. Suffering is not a competition. I didn't know what recovery meant a year ago. Thought it was an asylum for people who were indulgent, without discipline, other. The word addict alone was dripping with imagery and bias. The definition of addiction is any activity, substance, or behavior that has become the focus of a person's life to the exclusion of other activities that causes harm to the individual or others physically, mentally, or socially. That sounds a lot like general surgery residency. Every person in this room knows someone in recovery, whether you know it or not, and now you all know I am. Nearly 10% of you disclosed in the uh, to a substance use disorder that was diagnosed in the survey. No one wants to be in rehab. Addiction is not fun, but it isn't about the drug. The drug, or food, or process addiction is the smoke, not the fire. 
for as long as I can remember, I'm what Brene Brown calls a take the edge off holic. I'm highly skilled at avoiding feeling vulnerable. We all do this to a certain extent, need it in the operating rooms often, and sometimes it's needed to survive. Many times these behavior, behaviors are selective for success. You get adulation for it. In moderation, many of these activities are fun, as you know, but when you do things to avoid rather than to enjoy chronically, it's a problem. I also don't love the word recovery. I'm not sure what I'm recovering from since depression is a chronic disease or what state I'm recovering to. I don't want to be who I was a year ago. I think the process of recovery is largely taking time and space to focus on yourself, processing trauma, developing healthy coping mechanisms, and repairing and nurturing authentic and meaningful connections with yourself and others. Deep inquiry, brutal honesty, and self-compassion. Like any other skill, it requires discipline, dedication, and focus. Wouldn't it be great to develop these skills before having a crisis? Everyone should be in recovery. The world would be a better place. Your profession is not your identity. Our culture defines people by what they do. Why is nice to meet you followed by what do you do? I used to cringe, actually still do a bit, when people introduce me and immediately follow that with she played professional tennis. I have thought a lot about my own identity this past year and how difficult it is for anyone who's consumed by mastering a skill, be it in surgery or sport, to separate those two things, especially as a child. As a teenager, I refused to talk about tennis with my friends at home. While I didn't handle it in a healthy way, I think it was my futile attempt of reminding people that what I did wasn't who I was. Quitting tennis when I did was not popular and incredibly lonely. Nearly everyone I knew disappeared. No one checked in. My belief from an age way too young to know better, that my self-worth was contingent on competing and winning was validated. I felt like a commodity. I actually was, I guess. I learned about true friendships and loyalty the hard way. This resulted in having my first midlife crisis, second only to this past year and being my most severe depressive episode. It lasted my entire sophomore year of college. Instead of seeking help, I took 20 tough science credits both semesters, four-pointed, and ran my first marathon. I never stopped, processed, literally until two years ago. Discerning who you are distinct from what you do and the people around you, what brings you joy as distinct from what other people give you praise for, is hard, but critical work. Reconnecting to yourself and others is brutal. There's a reason that very few people do it. This is not saying that our work isn't incredibly meaningful or that we aren't passionate about surgery or caring for our patients. It is a great honor and privilege to be a surgeon. But anything that can be taken away from you is by definition not you. When you work 60 to 80 hours per week for a decade, 
or three or five, it's hard not to have your job define you. I didn't know who I was without being a tennis player, a surgeon, a wife, a mother. You don't need to hit rock bottom or uproot your life to focus on this. Think about what you value, not what you think you are supposed to value and who you value. Think about what makes you tick and what doesn't. Devote time to reflecting on this. I didn't dream of being a professional tennis player as a kid. Just because you're good at something or that everyone else thinks you should do something doesn't mean you have to. Following your passions and aligning how you spend your time with your values will not only make you happier, but also more successful. Success in academic surgery is subjective and there are many paths to success. Grit, a word I do like, is perseverance and passion. Number five, authentic connection is everything. We have come to define success with not needing anyone. Not sharing any emotion is equated with strength. Common themes in the stories of people I've met in recovery this year, many of whom are physicians and surgeons, are isolation and loneliness. Loneliness in a room full of people. Many are grieving the end of a marriage or a death of a loved one. Johan Hari posits that depression is a form of grief for the connections that we have lost yet need. Connection is said to be the cure for addiction. This has been the hardest thing for me to change. Asking for help was not in my armamentarium. When you feel like isolating, that's exactly when you need to call someone the most. For those of us with depression, this is particularly hard. But we can do hard things. As a physician, especially in training, we are surrounded by illness and death. My very first call night as an intern, I had three patients die. We joked that it was a hat trick. I would be surprised if anyone in this room doesn't remember the first time they pronounced a patient dead. I will never forget the anguish of the cry of the mother that I told her we were un unable to save her 16-year-old son from, from a gunshot wound and immediately being unable to resuscitate a two-year-old from an arrest from complications of abdominal compartment syndrome secondary to untreated Hirschsprung's disease. It is impossible to experience what we do without having it impact us. It is hard not to take complications personally. It isn't normal to have your patient die on the table and then go to your kid's soccer game and chit-chat with the other parents two, two hours later. It has been shown time and time again that experiencing major medical error is correlated with depression and suicidal ideation. We cannot cure all disease or prevent every complication. Our patients will die, sometimes by our own hands. So what can we do? We can talk to each other. We can support each other. We will hear this afternoon about peer support programs to do this proactively. We can learn healthy coping mechanisms. Read on psychology, philosophy, mindfulness, Buddhism, stories of other people who have struggled. Do something that you lose track of time doing. Do it because it brings you joy and for no other reason. Do it by yourself. Meditate. It's free, available 24 seven. 
Work at it like you work at becoming a skilled surgeon. Even a few minutes a day has shown objective health benefits, physical and mental. There's no wrong way to meditate. I'm painstakingly developing these skills, practicing daily to handle difficult days that are, will inevitably come. Wouldn't it be better to arm ourselves with these skills before entering a battle? Medical school is tough. General surgery residency is really tough. The first few years of being an attending are lonely. Suicidal ideation in our assistant and associate professors combined was 17%. Surround yourself with authentic people, people who make you feel safe and supported. Pema Chodron writes that compassion is not a relationship between healer and wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness can we pre present darkness of others, be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. Sympathy and pity act to distance and disconnect. Compassion is inclusive. Find your people. M&M is meant for learning how to improve patient care and to learn from each other's difficult cases. It isn't for shaming. It shouldn't be personal. The success of AA and other recovery groups is because of the connection, compassion, and support of each other. It is a rule, not an exception to check in regularly. Why don't we have this for healthcare providers? An anonymous place to talk. Surgeons Anonymous. Lesson number six, just listen. This is tough for us. If someone you know is in crisis, just be there. It was hard for them to ask for help. Let them know that their feelings are valid, not that they shouldn't feel them or that they should feel differently. Don't compare their troubles to other people Repeat, suffering is not a competition. Let them know they are not alone. Be kind. Sit quietly with them and listen if they talk. If they talk. You can't force someone to seek help or to change. All that you can do is support and love them. Don't judge. Don't shame. And don't try to fix it. Talk to them, not about them. Don't leave them alone. Get them the professional support they need. Our founder's lecturer, Dr. Christine Moutier, will share her expertise next on how to do this safely. No one knows how to show up for you unless you tell them. The hardest step to take is the first. I wish... I could give those of you in this room that are struggling the courage it takes to seek help, but I can't. I can promise you that people will show up for you, as you would for anyone else who asks for help. We want you here. We value you. And your feelings are valid. Number seven, you have to feel the pain. The goal is not just to survive, but to flourish. When you numb some emotions, you numb all of them. There is no joy without suffering. There is no love without heartbreak. Happiness, whatever that is, doesn't exist in isolation. 
Brene Brown writes that when we stop numbing and start feeling again, we have to reevaluate everything, especially how to choose loving ourselves over making other people comfortable. Turning toward the discomfort is a place of practice. Taking the edge off is not rewarding, trust me, but putting the edge back on is one of the most worthwhile things we can do. Those sharp edges feel vulnerable, but they are also the markers that let us know where we end and others begin. You can't outrun or outsmart vulnerability. In the midst of a struggle, the center will hold if and only if we can feel the edges. I had this mug made for Antonia Stephen, who's uh, one of my people. Hopelessness is a strong indicator of suicide risk. For hope, we need to set goals, develop a plan, and the flexibility, perseverance, and agency to course correct. We're surgeons. We're good at problem solving. You can do hard things, but you cannot do it alone. When you realize that your thoughts are distinct from your identity and that you can endure grief, you will realize how strong you are. Deep-seated feelings like shame and fear lose power when you expose them. It has been a year since my life changed course. I have grown a lot and still have a long way to go. Progress is slow and steady, a pace I'm getting used to. I have more good days than bad. I know what it feels like to be at peace. I know I'm a better mother, friend, and doctor. I am proud of myself for putting in the work and for getting uncomfortable. I am incredibly grateful for the people in my life. for having the opportunity to heal, and for the great privilege of being a surgeon. With that privilege, there is tremendous responsibility. In order to maintain that privilege, I need to prove my sobriety every day, three times a day, for three years. In some states, it's five. I'm required, although I do it anyway, to participate in multiple recovery meetings and therapy every week. I have monthly meetings with the Physician's Health Service and with my monitors at work, and I do my best to practice what I preach. So that's my story. We have the opportunity to change our culture. There is no easy fix, and I do not have all the answers. I do know that it won't get better unless we talk about it openly and honestly. Cultural shifts take time. Stigma and both overt and unconscious bias of people with mental health disease run rampant. If our institutions are sending the message to, be, to keep quiet, we will. We don't have access to, access to read our own patients' mental health records, yet we are expected to report our own to anyone that asks. Medical students are warned that they will have to report mental illness in the, in the future. I was recently asked to comment on a colleague's substance use and mental health in my peer recommendation for hospital credentialing. We need to advocate for ourselves and our colleagues, and we need to approach this on every level from self-care to a cultural shift. 
Mental health disease is pervasive. Suicidal ideation is shockingly common. Now what? Mantra number three, stating a problem without a potential solution is just complaining. We're surgeons, we like a plan. In the afternoon session and in the lunch session today, we're going to hear from a group of physicians committed to supporting treatment of mental health disease. Each has a unique perspective on current and proposed strategies to improve resources and support our colleagues. It will be an outstanding session. I hope you'll join us. Dr. Lorna Breen was an ER physician working at the height of the pandemic in New York City. Some of you in the audience may have known her. She was a highly successful academic, academically and beloved and by all accounts happy, no history of mental health disease. She died by suicide on April 26, 2020, after working tirelessly during the first wave of the pandemic. Her sister, Jennifer Breen Feist, and brother-in-law, Corey Feist, founded the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation in her honor, fighting for mental health for all healthcare workers. In February of last year, they passed the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Clinicians fear losing their license and credentials because of overly broad and invasive mental health questions on applications that are stigmatizing, discriminatory, and frankly violate privacy in the workplace. In addition to funding research for training healthcare professionals to reduce and prevent suicide and mental health conditions, they have to date audited and changed 20 state medical boards to remove the intrusive language from their licensure applications. Change to addressing mental and physical conditions as one, as they should, or not at all. And safe haven, no reporting options for physicians receiving care either through state physician health services or privately. They are proof that we can affect change. We spend countless hours training surgical skills, studying for the ab site, which was just a few weeks ago, and the steps, and in academic development. Why can't we spend a portion of that, that time developing skills to withstand the experiences of training, to train ourselves to support each other safely? The status quo is unacceptable. Something has to change. You have the power to affect change. Get in the arena. I've expressed my love and gratitude personally to my family and friends that supported me this past year and throughout my life, many of whom are here today. Jill, thank you so much for being here today. Thinking everyone would take more time than we have and, and take away from the focus of the day. I don't want this to be about me. So I'll keep it brief. I want to thank Steve for being a wonderful father to our children and for continuing to support me when I know it wasn't easy. You're a good man. To Gabe and Emery for bringing me joy and making me laugh. I'm so proud of you. I can't see my words anymore. To my colleagues and the leadership of MGH for allowing me the time to heal, the privacy, and support I needed. Keith, where's Keith? Thank you for the encouragement to share this story. Rich, mentoring took on a whole new meaning this past year. 
Thank you for knowing when to push and when to listen. To those of you who were in the trenches with me, at my darkest, my most human, you know who you are. Thank you for showing up for me, sometimes literally at my door, and for having my back. To my mental health team, you and all mental health professionals bear a tremendous amount of responsibility. You've all been an inspiration to me. To my re courageous recovery friends who have shown me the power of true compassion and authentic connection. I hope that I've given a voice to those of you who are struggling. I hear you. We will show up for you. You can get better. You will get better. Lastly, it has been one of the greatest honors of my life to lead this association and to join those that have committed themselves to changing the culture surrounding mental health. I want to thank my co-president, Becky White, the Mental Health Task Force, the members of the Executive Council, and all the committees and everyone else who contributes to this association, and my fellow officers and BSC, our management team, and my fellow officers for supporting this agenda and for your service. Calicia and Fabian, where are we? Thank you for showing up for me this summer. I can't wait to see the great things that you assuredly will accomplish in the coming years. The future of surgery is sitting in this room. It is up to you to shape it. Choose courage over comfort. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.